0: Please be advised. All music tracks used in this production are sole property of Kelson Communications and are original compositions. Thank you. Thank you for joining Philanthropy Infusion. I'm Michelle Woodard, your host and co producer, bringing you honest discussions about current social issues and how philanthropy plays a key role in moving us forward. Listen in to accomplished philanthropists and social entrepreneurs talk about the innovative work going on today. And how we can help philanthropy infusion for new ways of giving. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Philanthropy Infusion, which puts the spotlight on equity in philanthropy and new ways to give. I'm Michelle Woodard, host and co-producer, coming to you from the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, a Kelson Communications Inc. production. I'm honored to introduce today's guest, C. Artist Gardner Glazer. Ciardis, or CC, as her family, friends, and colleagues warmly refer to her, is currently the director of programs and strategic initiatives at the Satterberg Foundation in Seattle, Washington. In addition to her role at Satterberg Foundation, CC serves as chair of the board of directors of the Andris Family Fund. She has been a Connecting Leaders Fellow with the Association of Black Foundation Executives since 2017 is the Vice Chair of Programs for the Philanthropy Northwest Board of Directors, and is the Chair of the Board of Trustees at the Charlotte Y. Martin Foundation. Cece is a graduate of Yale University, earning a bachelor's degree in African American Studies, and went on to earn her Master's in Education in Education Administration from Seattle University. Cece graciously volunteers her time and talent to several organizations, including, but not limited, to the Bush School in Seattle, where she serves as trustee, Social Venture Partners Seattle, the Yale Black Alumni Association, and Treehouse, which is a nonprofit addressing the education and enrichment needs of youth experiencing foster care. Welcome, Cece. It's a pleasure to have you as our guest today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. Really happy to be here.
0: Cece, you currently hold the title of Director in Programs and Strategic Initiatives at Satterberg Foundation, which was an inaugural position at the time you joined in 2016. You were the first person of color to be employed at the foundation, which was founded in 1991. Can you talk about how your relationship with Satterberg Foundation transpired, and what those conversations were like, um particularly as they relate to your proposed role at that time and racial equity in grant making and philanthropy?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for for this question. Um, I think particularly thinking about you know Satterberg having been around for thirty years now. Um so so one thing with the foundation um just for context is that the foundation it's a family foundation and it was family run for the first uh 23 years or so. Um so um there was no staff, staff was not hired until about 2013. Um was the first staff member um, Sarah Walchek, who is our current executive director. Um, prior to that, the family was running the foundation, and Mary Pigott was the executive director of the foundation, um, and she's part of the family. So when I came in, I was the fourth person hired, and um, and just like you said, Michelle, I was the first person of color, and that was in 2016, and I actually came in as a program officer, and um, and I think it was, I intentionally was moving towards philanthropy, and um, and I was looking for a place that, you know, looked at philanthropy differently, a place that believed that the community were the experts, um, you know, and just different things like that, like looking, wanting to kind of break the, the mode of philanthropy, and I found that at Satterberg. And I was super excited to join. Um and I think, you know, particularly as a first person of color, small staff, still kind of in a startup mode, even though they've been around a long time. Um, but building, you know, staff and culture is, is something different. And I and I believe that everyone was super excited and welcoming. Um, but you know, I think uh Coming from a place like Seattle, um, which is where Satterberg Foundation is based, it was, you know, like, this is great, we've hired a person of color, but then maybe um, some underestimation as far as what that really meant. It wasn't going to be, like, now we just have a person of color because I'm a full person, and I'm bringing all of my experiences and and everything into this space with me, um so it was definitely going to shift the foundation from you know maybe some training and diversity equity and inclusion is something that we do um you know maybe through different workshops and things like that and as opposed to really embodying the d e i work and Now that I was here. You know, I'm not leaving. I'm here. Like, I'm here on Monday. I'm here on Tuesday. I'm still here. (laughs) Um, So it really just meant that, oh, this is going to be something we do all the time. Um, You know, it's going to come up in conversations. I'm going to show up if there's a murder of a black man and I'm thinking of my son or my father, I'm bringing that into the office with me. So this all of a sudden is not an abstract thing that you read about in the newspaper or that you saw on social media or on the news. I'm a real person connected to this. Um, And I'm in pain, and I'm going to bring all of that work, all of that pain with me into the office. Um, And some days I can deal with it. Some days I can't. Um, You know, just being in a space where particularly as the only person of color Um, and I think as time went on, we definitely, the next folks we hired were people of color as well. And I think that started to shift the conversation so that I wasn't always holding it. Um, the core of our work, our mission is to, um, to promote a just society and sustainable environment, and then there's a the third piece is doing this work deepens the interconnection of our family um, because it's a family foundation. And to me, I think when I came in, I it's on the wall. The mission is painted on the wall, and I see to promote a just society. To me, I see that as righting a lot of the wrongs in in um, in the the space that we're in, particularly in philanthropy, and looking at it from a different lens um, than what's traditionally looked at. So how do we look at philanthropy as a way of returning resources? How do we talk about philanthropy in a way that we actually start to acknowledge, well, where did this wealth come from? Why do we have it and other folks don't? Like, what were the tax laws in place that allowed, you know, for certain people to amass wealth? Why is it that some people have access to uh, higher quality education than other folks? Like, we really have to look at those at those things. To me, when I see just society, that's what I think we're doing. Um, when we read the grants, we're looking at who's leading the organization. Is it led by people from the community? Is it top down or is it grassroots? All of those things are the questions that I came in with, and I was very clear about that, and I think in some cases maybe, and not just with the board, but I think with staff as well, that it's like, oh, so we're also going to pay attention to these things, um, who's leading the organization, and, you know, and how do we make sure that for the way that we do philanthropy is actually um, from a philosophy of a return of resources and acknowledging where those resources came from. And so, are
0: do you think um that um, were you really the person taking the lead on most of these conversations that were were that you were having with leadership with the board uh and were some of these conversations um uncomfortable or awkward <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: yes um there were definitely some uncomfortable or awkward moments um and i think Maybe it was like I was I was taking the lead not only because I'm I'm a person of color, I'm a black woman, but also because I've done diversity, equity and inclusion work in previous jobs. Um so I've done it in a in a professional sense. So I'm like I'm thinking this is a scale that I can bring here because we don't really have any of the intent intentional work around doing doing real equity work and we should be at you know, and really and and really just pointing out the things that, to me, I think are just natural. Like, I want to know, well, who's leading this organization? How do, you know, do people from the community have a voice? Um, I want to know who we're hiring as consultants. Why did we pick this consultant over that consultant? So a lot of those things just come from my diversity background, but then also as a black woman, and, I, and I'm and i also not the quietest person. Um, I'm shy, but if I have something to say, I'm going to say it, and I'm going to ask all the questions, all the things, all the time. That, you know, sometimes I'm even wondering, I'm like, are they like, is she going to stop talking at some point, um there's always something else she wants she wants to do, or you know has an idea about this, or have we thought about this and And for me, I also recognize that there are not a lot of black and brown folks in philanthropy, so if I'm in the space and I have this lived experience, I have to bring it with me all day, every day. I don't get to mm-hmm. just come in the room and take up a spot and sit at the table and say absolutely nothing. When things are happening um that are that are actually causing harm to the communities we want to serve, um mm-hmm. and I think we've seen that we've we've seen people of color there's you can be a you know a little bit nervous um this is your job, and you need your job, you have to feed your family um but I think there's an, another side to it too is for us for people of color we're not even supposed to be in this space um it's not designed for us. Um, and, and we have to come in and disrupt it. And I'm pretty clear about that's what I want to do, and not be disruptive, but disrupt kind of the cycle and the system that's been in play for hundreds of years, and really mm-hmm. just going in, um, as Edgar Villanueva of Decolonizing Wealth, he really goes in on, well, what is the actual, what's the literal translation of philanthropy? And it's actually just the love of people, the love of your fellow human. That's what this is. And at some point, this has turned into a business. It's got all of these rules that people actually believe are real. Like, you have to have evaluations. I need a report. I need data. I need an application, a site visit, um, an LOI. And it's like, well, why do you need all those things? If I provide all of that to you, do you know my community better now? No, you don't. Like, you're because you're judging me based on maybe an article that you read or uh, talking to other folks in philanthropy, but without ever actually asking the people that are in the community and know mm-hmm. what they need. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's the piece that I just really want to get back to. And um, and if it means creating some uncomfortable moments in the office, um, so be it.
0: And as time has moved along since you joined the foundation um it, it sounds like the quote awkward conversations and the, you having that voice and really bringing putting these issues and and these conversations on the table um my question was going to be has these awkward conversations become less frequent? But it doesn't sound like that's the case because this is life and these issues are real um our work is real and it continues um is that accurate that the conversations continue um and they're not always they're not always easy to have Yes yeah
1: um i think you're absolutely right Michelle um this this is life I mean, that's, that's really where we are, and I think um, um, as a family, and I think as our staff, we've really grown together. I've been there five years now, and um, we've really started to see a shift, and and, you know, I really hope that the family recognizes that shift and then starts to partner with other foundations around this work and how, you know, just really sharing the story. Like, it's not easy, it is awkward, and it can be uncomfortable, but... And the, at the end of the day, it can be done. Um, and I think we're moving into a place now because, for me, I'm 45 years old, and this is what I've been dealing with for 45 years. Like, this is none of this is new to me. So how do we get to shift not only within our own organization at Satterberg, but just in the diversity space in general and racial justice space to where people stop looking at this as, like, as work, um, because for me, this is actually my life. Like, I don't get to say, "Ah, oh, I'm a little tired of doing DEI training, so I'm going to tap out, and maybe I'll pick it up in the fall of 2022, yeah. um, because I'm tired of Zoom, and, you know, and I'm thinking, hmm, that's amazing that you can turn that off and just go focus on it when you have time and space. Um and especially when we're on Zoom, when you're doing any training that we're doing, you're doing it from the safety of your home. There's no threat of mm-hmm. being murdered, of being followed, of being, I mean, you know, just all of the things that I think about that not only that I've seen on on TV through these murders and what's happening in this country, but that I have also experienced as a black woman. So to me, this is very real and, and I think that's where we are now. I think now that people have been home for fourteen months, um, you know, stuck to being on um on virtual meetings and everything, I, I do think people are are tired. And also people are tired of having to have this conversation. Um and and that's and now I'm I'm realizing that for me we've moved beyond it being the awkward conversation or the thing that makes you uncomfortable to, for me, if you don't actually want to do this work, I'm not going to be able to engage because to me mm-hmm. if, um, I can't, I can't uh, disconnect, disconnect myself from that or my family or, you know, that kind of thing. Like I see it as um, like, this is my life. So if you say you don't want to learn, then I actually I take it as, like, you don't actually see me as a full person, because um, mm-hmm. I don't have that option to tap out. Um,
0: and you made that point at the 2019 Seattle Equity Summit, uh, and I, it w- which I found to be a very deeply touching distinction between people that are doing the work. But for people of color, it's not work; it's it's life. Like this is your life. So as you said, you can't just tap out and say, "Oh, I'm tired of doing this now," because this is you are this is your life, and this is you are as a person. Um, so I just wanted to make that point that that was a a very uh, deeply touching distinction, and I think it you know for me it did resonate, um, and hopefully it resonated with everybody that was at the summit and beyond.
1: Thank you. I hope so. <laughs>
0: So you made a comment about maybe having kind of a roadmap where hopefully other family foundations will follow suit. Um, have you found that other family foundations or nonprofits have reached out to you or this, the Satterberg Foundation for guidance or help in taking similar action?
1: Yeah, uh, we have actually just from you know the art- article that was in the Chronicle, and I did a webinar on Chronicle of philanthropy. So we are actually getting more and more people to reach out, and uh, and I think you know when 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 I have phone calls with folks, I think they're they're like, oh my gosh, we have an hour, let's talk about this. We really want to know the secrets and. And, you know, and, and then I get on, and I'm very, I mean, I'm just who I am in every space I'm in because I'm just tired, and <laughs> this is just what, what you're going to get. Um, but people are expecting, like, something. They're like, she's going to give us all the secrets. And and the main thing is um, stop being racist <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and return the resources to community uh, yeah. and get out of the way. Like, give the money and get out of the way. Stop doing racist things. Um, stop upholding white supremacy in so many different ways. Um, and I know that folks are conditioned to it. Um, and it's like, well, what does this look like if we don't ask for all of these things? Like, are we doing our job? Are we doing our due diligence? But, you know, so, and and I think, oh, my gosh. And the other piece, Michelle, is that everyone now, because of the uprisings of 2020, Everyone now wants to be woke, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're reading books. Like, they read books over the summer, and they're like, we got it figured out, and now I understand all of this, and I'm going to move in this direction. And And it's like, really, hold on, pause, take a breath, because we this has been around for hundreds of years. None of this is new. What may be new to you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to remember, is not new for people of color. We've We've been in this, so... The urgency that a lot of foundations have, and I think uh, maybe some nonprofits as well, because foundations are pushing this, they're saying, like, I need to know, you know, I only want to fund BIPOC-led organizations, and I want to know who's on your board, who's on your staff, what's your leadership look like, what's your retention look like of people of color, all of these questions, and, and when I hear funders asset because now nonprofits are like, oh my gosh, do we fire all these people and start over? Or what do we do? We don't have anyone that represents community. And it's like, well you should. But also, how about we ask foundations the same questions? What would their answers be? Do they have people of color on their boards? Do they have staff of color in leadership roles? Um I, and and you know and I think sometimes it's people want to move so quick without actually taking care of um, what they need to do internally and kind of building out their own infrastructure. Um, Because I'm really, I get a little bit nervous in seeing where this is going to be in a couple of years um, when people have, because funders have said, you need to have all these people of color on your board and your staff, and now nonprofits are going to go out can really try to capture some BIPOC folks to be on their staff and board, but they haven't done any learning themselves. They haven't built any infrastructure to keep people safe, uh, to to reduce harm that people of color may experience in their organization. So those people of color aren't going to stay. And then at Mm -hmm. the same time, if we push back on funders and start asking them the same questions, they're gonna start doing the same thing, and just like, "Oh, we have to go hire five black people by Thursday and it's like black people have been here four hundred and two years. y'all mm-hmm. you couldn't hire anyone before Thursday Mhm what's the you know so for people of color, there's definitely urgency there, but really there's still a gap in trust of like I don't actually believe that philanthropy is going to sustain the um, the work that they're saying they want to do now. I feel like like everything, you know, this is a, you know because this summer it was amazing, everybody was in, and even now it's kind of died down a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm not sure where we'll be, you know, even by this fall.
0: And we all know if crisis funding is not sustainable. Uh, yes. As you said, and it's already we're already starting to see a, a, a decline um, in in, the, in that area. So I just I just want to um, read something to you from a recent study by BridgeSpan and Echoing Green. Um, okay. And and it and part of the what their summary was of their study, and I believe the study was uh, uh, over three years. Black and brown led organizations win less grant money. And are less trusted to make decisions on how to spend those funds than white leaders, and are the difference, and the differences are significant. Um, white-led groups with budgets sometimes 24% higher, um, which was, uh, as you said, w- you know, we may or may not have known that, but people are now paying attention to it. And this study was really based on um, data that they pulled together. Um, talking with leaders, and, you know, again, not my words, but this was part of the results of this study. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as you said, we may have known this was going on. This has been going on for a very long time, and part of what this study also said was this this is what black and brown communities and and leaders of organizations that support black and brown communities have been saying for a very long time, and now people – are paying attention to it, um, and so with that, you know, we talk about as grant makers, you know, what 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 steps can people take, or uh, you know, to kind of address this funding gap, which is a very stark gap. Um, and you mentioned unrestricted grants and, and getting moving in that direction. I know it's a it's a huge barrier to get through, um, but are is that some of the discussions that you've had um, at the foundation, or, um, and do you have some other thoughts on first steps, you know, uh, to take to address this funding gap?
1: Yes. Um, I think one of the things that, that funders need to move toward is just, like, change, changing um, their policies that they currently have and change them in a way that impacts getting funding to um, to BIPOC-led organizations, um, particularly Black and Indigenous. Uh, Black and Indigenous-led organizations have been underfunded for many, many, forever, um, you know, since we've had the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, those organizations have been extremely underfunded. And now I think what we're seeing, because you do have some funders that, Recognize that and are like, oh my gosh, this is some, this is new information for me. I didn't know this, and we really need to do better. And now that they're, you know, they're having different grant rounds and cycles where they're saying this round is only for Black and Indigenous, or it's only for people of color-led organizations. Um, and then there's there is a little bit of white lash where they're like, well, what about us, like? Um, we've been doing the work for a long time, and it's not fair, and and it's like, okay, again, we're talking about hundreds of years of corrections that we have to make, and I think th- – and this is also where um, – the conversation around reparations comes in um, because there's definitely some reparative action that needs to happen in the space of philanthropy and in thinking about how we return resources. If if you spend a couple of years giving to black and brown organizations, none, there, there isn't any amount of money in the world that's going to fix hundreds and hundreds, centuries old of of the system that has advantaged white people, there isn't—I mean, that—that's just not there. There, there. I can't even think of what the infinite numbers are of money. Um, of you know, stolen land, wage, that free labor on the backs of black bodies. Like, there's so much there um, that that we can't even begin to kind of to repay that, but what we can do is start to make repair and create some action around the repair that we're doing um, because, what, like, when I think about reparations, I'm really holding um, the, the definition that the Movement for Black Lives moves I mean, uses, and that's around, you know, making repairs, restoration, and some healing. The healing really needs to happen. And we have to change the way that we think about, um, And we think about how do we get dollars out the door, who are we funding, if you spend five minutes giving to PLC-led organizations, when you've given, especially some of these foundations that have been around for over 100 years, uh, your funding has not been going to people of color for 100 years. If we go back and look at all your data, I can assure you your funding has been going to to white-led organizations. So you can make a shift for a little bit, and I think there's that piece of, well, you're taking away something from me um, to give something to someone else without actually acknowledging the historical um, space that we've been in for all this time, and it is actually time to kind of make some shifts in that that direction and give unrestricted funding and give funds um, not just like to to a nonprofit, but oh my gosh, Michelle, I would love, what I really want to see is I want funders to start giving money directly to people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, you know, at MacArthur Genius Award, people have figured it out. You can give funds to people. There's a little thing you have to do to do it. Um, but you can do it, and mm-hmm. I would love to see that. It, just to release it and re and do it in the spirit of return, and not in the spirit of charity. Like I mm-hmm. have to see a demonstrated need. Know that I'm better than you, in order for me to decide that you've um, you're worthy of these crumbs that I'm gonna give you.
0: Mm. Yes, yeah. And there was an increase in funds going directly to people that needed. Um, mm-hmm. And even even some follow-up, and we'll talk a little bit about you know uh, data in a minute. Um, but there was an increase, and what the what the pandemic showed us is that money can get out to individuals, and they it can get out pretty quickly without all of yes. those obstacles, as you said. In time of crisis, it's amazing how all of those obstacles and rules and regulations just kind of came. Now, I don't want to say tumbling down, but they were put aside. Right and 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 it worked, and what the and there was even some data that showed you know uh, people that received those funds directly actually used it for their their needs for housing for right. health care for food <laughs> just the basics to survive right, <laughs> so it can yeah. be done it's it it has been shown and it's it's worked it's worked pretty well so i I totally agree on that on that point. Um, so Thank I just, I, wanted, I want to pivot to the Seattle Equity Summit. Uh, this was your idea, your creation, um, and I just want to, before we kind of get into I I, I watched your opening um, statement, which I was very inspired by, but I, I just want to get a sense of, like, what events led to your idea, to this idea, and, like, how did your idea become a reality?
1: Yeah, um, oh my gosh, it was uh A long story. I mean, it was, it took a really long time, and I had started planning this summit, let's see, in probably 2015. Um, I believe at that time I was the president of Yale's Black Alumni Association, and we really wanted to do something where we partnered with other organizations, and we really wanted to hold something that was cross sector. Um, Because, you know, we noticed just as as folks in the work, you go, you know there's like the nonprofit conference there's the philanthropy conference, and there's the journalist con- you know it's all of the different conferences in these silos, and we thought how and everyone is talking about equity, so how can we move toward getting everyone together in one space to talk about how we can we can shift things um together, but in our own individual spaces and come together and do that for a day? So um, I had, you know, that was an idea I had, and then over the years I brought on different partners, and I really wanted it to be regular people, um, you know, not like all the fancy names that that people um, would, like, love to share space with, because I want it to be real. I don't want it to be like a showcase for folks um i you know like how can we also provide a platform for folks who who aren't always given the talks who aren't always the keynote speakers but are doing amazing work so if we're designing this we have an opportunity to to raise up these voices um so that was something that was really important to me as well and and in talking with um different partners over time then they were like oh and we can get this person and it was all these big names and I'm like no that's not what this is um so I was like I don't want to do this with you anymore because um, 'cause are trying to change it, and that's not yeah. what I—that's not the vision I have. So continue, you know, and then people would hear about it, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, we want to work with you on this." And then again, the same thing would happen. They're like, "And then we could make it like this, and it's going to cost this much for everyone to attend." And I was like, "No, it has to be free." Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're going to get <laughs> donations and every like to cover it. Um, you know, so it, and we're gonna have these 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 world renowned uh speakers or um caterers or hill like all of and I was like, No, I have a caterer here in Seattle that is amazing black woman owned this is who I want um I have a photographer here that is a young woman of color, this is who I want <laughs> um so. It was all. It was a lot of pushback, and then finally, I remember I was talking about it at work with um, Sarah Walchek, our executive director, and she was like, "Hey, can we partner on this?" I was like, "Really?" Because um, I had started this before I was at Satterberg, and you know, and I would just share in staff meetings, "Oh man, this is where I am on the Equity Summit now," and when she said that, it just really opened. I mean, it just opened the door to to do something that hadn't been done um, in the in the traditional sense of like a conference. And, and we wanted it to be intimate. It was only 125 people that attended. We actually had a process for folks um, to attend to make sure we had a good mix of folks. Like we didn't want to just send the link out and say, you know, whoever gets the link first, y'all can take up all the spots um we didn't do that we had everyone um you know fill out a form to indicate their interest and including ethnicity and gender and um and what uh what sector they were in professionally so that we we wanted to create a good mix and in seattle um in in seattle proper there's a it's pretty white so by doing it this way we created um a space that had a critical mass of people of color which we don't actually get in the in the center of Seattle and at different events. So that alone shifts the dynamic of of the day. Um and then, you know, once Satterberg came on as a partner, then we were able to get a couple more partners that really was like, hey, we want, we just want to be a part of this. What's your vision? Let us know what we need to do. And Fred Hutch partnered with us and TAF Technology Access Foundation, um, and it was, it was amazing. Um, the the Eichelbazia co-chaired it. Trish Malines DeZico at TAF co-chaired it and I've never done something like that and it was you know again just having a clear vision and then being able to finally partner with folks that were like I love it and I think that might work or I'm not quite sure but you know what we're going to follow <laughs> we're going to follow you with it cuz you have this vision and we want to support it and we're now in the process of a process of planning our third one um wow. And I, I thought this was going to be a one and done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Little did you know, you have your work cut out for you now. yes, <laughs> now, now exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but congratulations, really, on your vision becoming a reality and having it be so hugely successful. Um, and I really like the concept of, you know, what we don't need the stars in the space to be here. We don't. We want everyday people doing the work in living the life. And I just think that makes puts a whole other dimension to it. So congratulations.
1: Thank you. It, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, and we when we did the survey at the end, we asked, who oh, who would like to be involved in thinking about, you know, what this could be another time or, you know, or something like that. And then we got a, a whole lot of people said yes. So it turned into the Seattle Equity Summit Collaborative group um and we meet every other tuesday and um even in between planning of conferences uh, the summit and every, but it's just been another way just to create community and that's been um i'm super grateful for that
0: so i loved your opening statement during the 2019 summit when you said instead of just talking about equity, how about we actually do some? And I heard kind of like a yay and a rumble in the the audience. Um, (laughs) I loved that statement. I really do because, again, uh, since we're talking honestly, we know there's always a percentage of people uh, that will give lip service to or say the right thing but don't actually take action. And then we have a group, another group of people that – They are saying the right thing politically, Um, they're, you know, kind of figuring out how to take action, but maybe they don't know how to get started, but the intention is good. And then another group of people that are like, they're not only talking about it, they're doing it, and they're living it. So I loved that statement, but I just wanted to get a, a, you know, a sense from you, like how, what was the conversation throughout the day or throughout the summit with the audience? How did that resonate with the audience, and, and what do you think, you know, how that statement resonates with the broader communities?
1: Oh, my gosh. I think um, <laughs> for the audience, I think people were like, hell yes, like, exactly. <laughs> this is what we need to do. And I think it also mm-hmm. kind of just, like, threw the the veil down of, oh, that's what this is going to be today, <laughs> We're we're not gonna do it the Seattle polite Seattle niceness. And, oh, it's so great to be, you know, like oh, we're not doing that. Whatever it is we feel and we need to lend our voice to, we're gonna do it. And I think it is um, something um, when you have a critical mass of people of color in a space too, because many of us um, are the only people of color or one of few in um, in the professional spaces we're in. So, um, you know, I know I have to, have to kind of juggle, like, if someone says something to me or something just isn't quite right, I'm like, uh, do I need to say something today? Uh, my kids like eating, so maybe I'll be quiet and I'll say it next Tuesday. <laughs> you know, I have to balance, <laughs> balance things out. But it, in this particular okay. space, I think just with that statement and that opening, we were saying, this is our space. Um, Welcome everyone into this space, but we're going to show up differently than what you've seen of us at work Um, because we, you know, it's like we felt some ownership in that space. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, oh my gosh, Michelle, just as, as you were talking about, you know, having people at different stages, like people that have the language, people that have done the work and have the language, there's all these different, Um, uh, folks on the spectrum of equity and racial justice. And I would say in planning this conference, so many folks really kind of like showed who they really are. You know, Mm -hmm. um, like as as I mentioned, we had um, the process for attending the conference because it was a really tight space as well. We didn't have a lot of room and we wanted that. Um, that was intentional. We wanted it to feel almost like church, where you were going to sit super tight to the person next to you, like squeezed into a pew. You you were not going to have one chair for your Yeti water bottle and then the other chair <laughs> for your bag. Or, you know, like, no, that chair is for a person um, and mm-hmm. get cozy. And, um, and, and it really pushed people. Like a lot of the feedback we got, was um, from a lot of white folks that uh, maybe didn't get in, but, you know, they would email, like, my boss or say, I need to talk to who's planning this conference because I did not get in and I do racial equity work. And what is your racial equity analysis to choose who gets to come to this or not? But you could (laughs) see it was, I was like, "Uh uh-oh. <laughs> You've been doing racial equity work, you're in solidarity with people of color, but uh oh, you didn't get what you wanted and you don't know what this feeling is. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and they for up uh, I was like, Ooh, she's mad at me <laughs> <laughs> But it was so it was it was like people not even realizing that the fact that you went and you called the manager <laughs> Yeah. Yes, to talk to someone about you not getting your space (laughs) that you so rightly deserve because you've done racial equity work and you Mm -hmm. need to be there.
0: (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) So it was, you know, so it was even, um, and I think I shared some of that at the conference um, because people had asked, like, what was that like having to turn people away? And I was like, I mean, some of it was space, but some of it was also, we, we just had to create the the right environment um but also you know we knew folks were going to keep it real that day and um and I think you know while we did have some big names in the space it was those folks were there I mean it was everyone that was there had a connection to me it was relationships and so everyone that was there were there because I I called upon them and them and ask, like Can you do this for me um but no one was and be, there and because
0: they fine. know you and because they know you and you had a relationship they knew what the, yeah. they knew that this if you're going to attend this is about honesty so that's you know i hope you know yeah. i'm guessing there were no surprises <laughs>
1: yeah there were i mean there were some there were some really big things that happened that day um one a short story I'll share with you, and I think this goes to why having critical mass is so important but there was an incident that happened um where we had a great you know a great session, and there's two friends, a black woman and a white woman and what they do on stage is have a conversation around um you know just around. Like, oh, did you notice this in the hotel today? The guy held the door for you, but he didn't hold the door for me um, as a black woman is talking. Or, you know, I'm really just sharing stories about how they grew up, and, and it was really good. And then there became a moment where we could do pair shares, you know, in the audience with the folks sitting next to us. And then it was time for Q&A, and then someone actually asked the question um of the white woman on on stage and just said, you know, I, I call BS. Um and this story's been talked about a lot. It's still the I think the highlight of the conference. A couple of people have written about it. <laughs> but they but they call called in this white woman on stage and said, you know, you did something and you know what you did and the woman says, Oh, the water And she says, yes, you spilled water here, and you left it, expecting someone else to clean it up. Mm -hmm. So the black woman is like, I have to go and get the paper towels and clean up after you, and black women have been cleaning up after white women for many years. Mm -hmm. Um, and And what happened in that moment, it was painful, it was beautiful, and it was honest, because then, you know, you have this person on stage that, has been doing racial equity work for a long time and had to really, sometimes, you know, like we got to check ourselves and like, I'm not the, I mean, you know, even though I've been doing this work a long time, I still have blind spots and I'm still going to mess up. And it's, you know, everyone had comments from the audience and everyone was just like, we just need you just apologize. Like, just apologize. Don't say, oh, I didn't notice it or I didn't see that. I didn't know that, ha-, you know, or, um, kind of the way that everyone wants to go to. And in that moment, it was mm-hmm. like, we need to stop, and you just need to apologize.
0: Yeah, no that, more excuses.
1: Exactly. And, and mm-hmm. then, you know, Michelle, what was interesting in that moment is that it was only, it was black women and some black men that were standing up in solidarity in this moment. Um, but there wasn't any white person that stood up until someone said, how come no white people stood up in this moment? Um, and there was and someone stood up and said, you know, I'm embarrassed. Like, mm-hmm. you know, something happened. It was like they didn't want to be in community with with this other white person in that moment. It was like, Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, you're making us all look bad. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt like that was so key, and particularly what's happening right now is that there are white folks that are doing their work, that are reading books, or that are really leaning in, like beyond the reading of books, but starting to lean in um, to really kind of the, the dark, deep pieces of what it means to do this work and evaluate why you have resources or access to things that other people don't. And, and and then there's other white folks that are not as far along on this journey as as maybe someone else is, but then the folks that are further along don't want to go back and get those other white folks. Hmm. And it's like, that's your people. Like, I need you to collect your people so that I can do the work that I'm doing because hmm. if, if you don't collect them, then what happens, those are the folks that end up in spaces with me that do the craziest stuff, mm-hmm. um, but, you know. But it's like, but you don't get to like separate yourself from your community. But there is this piece of like, I don't want to talk to them because they're, um, you know, like they're they're not as far along as I am. I know so much more than they do, and it's like, yeah, but six months ago you were them. I need you to I need you to talk to them and hold yes. faith with them and be ashamed and be embarrassed with them because mm. who else is going to get them you want me to get them i don't have
0: capacity for that <laughs> yes yes no i it, it's such a good point um and i think it you know goes back to another inviting statement that you made lean into uncomfortable where okay if somebody was you know has made that progress, and they don't want to identify with somebody that's six months behind them or hasn't hasn't made as much progress. Um, but, as you said, meet them where they are and bring them along because who else is going to do that uh, <laughs> and share you know, share the uncomfortable moment, share the embarrassment, share the vulnerability because that all comes with having an honest discussion. We're going to stumble along the way. Say the wrong thing, ask the wrong question, still with good intentions, but mm-hmm. until somebody until somebody points it out, and only when somebody points it out is when we learn um and so, as right. you said, people maybe further ahead, come back, <laughs> like you said, come back, <laughs> meet people where they are, and you know hopefully continue to help them to move along, right because you were all this, all in this together,
1: right, right, like don't wait. For people of color, don't wait for black folks to do it. Like we're tired, we want a break, mm-hmm. you know. So needing yes. folks to step up and 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 do that and do that piece of the work.
0: So you talk about qualifiable evidence, which can be or is more valuable than quantifiable data, and I really just want to um, take a few minutes to hear more about that. I think it's it just a, it's again a very striking. Um statement. Uh, and can you talk more about that? I'd love our listeners to hear what you mean by it, and you know, and then you know how we can embrace this.
1: yes, um yeah, thank, thank you for asking that question. It's something I like to talk about all the time, and i I've seen, I mean, I've experienced this personally, like one one um story I always share. When I was going into philanthropy, I applied for a job to be um, a program officer at a foundation working with homeless youth or uh, maybe youth that have aged out of foster care. So I'm being interviewed. They're asking me the questions like, what is your experience in this area and, you know, and everything. And I shared that, you know, I, I grew up in Seattle, um, spent a lot of time being homeless. So spent a lot of time in shelters with my mother um you know so I know what it's like to partner with the public schools and how the school has to send the bus to the new shelter and you know all of these things this is this is my experience and um and then I've I've partnered with um youth that have aged out of foster care that have experienced homelessness and just kind of um connecting them with services and 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 things like that around getting being housing secure um so I I share this And the person says, oh, that's really interesting. Have you written a paper about it or done an internship around that? And I said, no, have not had the opportunity. Uh, And they said, you know, because the other folks applying for this job have written, like, white papers um, around this and, um, you know, and have done, like, an internship in D.C., you know, around this. And I said, "Huh, I've lived it. And it was then that I noticed that um folks the lived experience piece people treat that as if it's not real, like that's not real data like I've had people i mean I've been in rooms on grant committees, volunteer grant committees where where people are debating. Um, something it can be around homeless youth or um, I was on a grant committee where we were talking about teen moms and there was a decision do we give the money to to the home for teen mothers or do we give the money to maybe a Planned Parenthood around teen pregnancy prevention everyone wanted to give to teen pregnancy prevention and I'm asking why can't we do both and they're like no we have to only do systems level we can't do like the the home for teenage moms because that's not really changing anything or and I'm like, I have my kid in tenth grade. Without certain programs I wouldn't be in this space at the table with you right now. Um but you're but they're like, but studies show that if we can do the prevention or I mean, or people were saying, Oh, I, I read an article and it said that homeless youth really want perfume and, you know, like care packages, things like that. And I was like, huh, as a homeless youth, I really wanted um luggage so I didn't have to carry my things in garbage bags mm-hmm. and um and socks. Because moving from place to place I mean, even if you live in a stable home, the dryer eats your socks. Like you it you goes in there yeah. with ten <laughs> socks and comes out with six. I don't know where all the socks Disappears are.
0: Disappears into thin air. I can never figure that out. <laughs> right? It's I don't true. know where so the socks true. are going.
1: <laughs> and it's like imagine traveling from place to place, you know, not having a drawer for your things or and just carrying your things in garbage bags. I'm like, luggage, like rolling luggage so that you can take it on the bus and, you know, all these things. And they said, okay, that's nice. But, like, I just told you I read this article, and I'm like sir, this is I'm a real person, I'm a whole person. I'm really real in this chair right now, and I am telling you <laughs> from my own experience or and we can and we can actually ask you we can ask them we can bring them in here, and you can ask them what they need but a, but you're reading an article and you're taking the word of this article at i you know like as the gospel of what. This population needs, and it's so what it, I, I mean I really feel like it's going it will shift so many things once people learn to value lived experience and hire people with lived experience, not just with um you know like oh, we need you to have this kind of school or um, this kind of background before you can even get an interview and get hired and I know for me, I feel like I snuck in I mean you know like. People think they're getting a a regular person, and then I come with the homeless stories and the teen pregnancy, and mm-hmm. you know, I community college and I transferred to Yale um, and graduated when I was thirty three or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but you know, and then I'm there, and they're like, uh "Oh, how this person in here <laughs> talking about <Yeah>. homeless stuff."
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm sure it's a yeah. I'm sure that's a surprise. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, um, it's one of my favorite things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know it—it it, it definitely is a major shift in thought process, right? So it—and it, it kind of ties back into you know having that shift of looking at data and having data be the end-all, be-all,
1: um, mm-hmm. and and
0: and kind of disqualifying qualifiable evidence, which is the best. If somebody has actually lived it, they know it. But I think it t- you know, it ties back into the importance of supporting grassroots organizations and grant makers um, making that shift from using the data and proposing to know the best ways to use their funds or to give their funds out to, hey, how about if we listen to people that have lived the life and people that live in the communities um, that know firsthand what their communities need and where the funds can be most effective.
1: Yes, yes. It's like how do we how do we get there, and how do we just trust people and stop pretending that philanthropy is like this really highbrow, really abstract, difficult thing that you have to be super duper like educated on, like, you have to have gone to the School of Philanthropy to know how to do this work, to know how to facilitate the return of resources. And, um, and you know, whenever, like, people are like, well, how do you know to give, like, unrestricted um, multi-year funding? And for Satterberg, um, the first thing they did when they knew they were, they, they just had an influx of assets, their assets grew by a ton, and they paused, and they just, they called nonprofits and invited them to the office and said, tell us what you you wish funders knew. And what came back, you know, overwhelmingly was we would love funders to give us unrestricted multi-year funding. The end, point blank, period. And that was what the foundation did. They created a program around that. And, you know, people like to act like this is rocket science. And I always share, like my grandmother, who had – a tons of grandchildren, and she would send our kids birthday cards every year on their birthday, and maybe it would have a $5 Barnes and Noble card in it, or, I mean, not a it was, maybe it was $10 Barnes and Noble, or sometimes it was a $5 bill. And I remember my kids, like, actually asking Grandma, they were like, uh, Grandma, we appreciate the card, but, like, we don't really want the Barnes and Noble gift card, because I don't want to go to the bookstore. I want to just buy what I want. So she's like, yes. oh, so you would rather get $5 <laughs> in cash instead of the $10 gift card? And they're like, yes, please. And my yes, grandmother please. listened <laughs> and sent everyone $5. She got rid of the cards and just did $5, $5. And I was like, my grandmother was a multi-year unrestricted funder. <laughs> you know, she listened to her community, <laughs> took the feedback, and she was like, okay.
0: You know, fine, y'all. You get the five bucks.
1: But that is then, a
0: that is like the best analogy. That is the best right? analogy. I'm like, come it on, really guys. is. This isn't really hard. is
1: hard. Like, how how many of us have relatives that have gone to college and then maybe we send them fifty dollars to buy books or something like that? You know, and then that cousin comes home for Christmas and then we say, "Hey, how was how how was your semester?" And they're like, "It was great." I'm like, boom! That's a report, you know. Yeah. Like, yes.
0: we've been doing this for years as a community. Yes, <laughs> yes. no, and you know what? It's, uh, it's a great, great, another great point that you're making because that's some that is a a topic of discussion: unrestricted funds and nonprofits pleading <laughs> with foundations and their grant makers particularly during the pandemic, that's that there was such a, a spike in that discussion of unrestricted funds because, and, and, and again, what we saw, um, and this is based on the reports that were out there during um, the pandemic, is that somehow foundations and grant makers figured out a way to lift all those reporting restrictions and to say, <laughs> you know what, we're gonna because in order for you to sustain now, during the pandemic when the economy was so turbulent, the nonprofits needed those funds to be unrestricted so they could decide what they needed and how to spend that money in order to just sustain. So we did see that was also that happened, and it was okay. It was okay. Right. It was okay.
1: <laughs> we didn't
0: explode
1: or anything. No, like everything kept going
0: everything kept going and um nonprofits that may not have survived actually survived because they were able to use the unrestricted funds to pay their make their payroll and keep staff on yep. and not have to cut programs um and you know figure out like they again the leaders of those nonprofits know their business better than anybody um, right. so so let the the leaders decide how to use those funds and where it's best applied.
1: Yes. Please. <laughs> <laughs> it's real easy. We're making we make this so much more harder than it ever has to be. And maybe that's mm-hmm. so that we feel like we're like doing something important. I mean we're doing something important, but it's not hard it It's more heart work it's it's our heart's work, and I think if you're in philanthropy, you have to be connect- it has to be connected to your heart and be your heart's work, or you should find another job, kind of like teachers mm-hmm. that don't like kids
0: you know again, I think um and, and and not to make excuses just from what I've experienced is that Grant makers and people that are giving donations, um, particularly of a significant amount, they do like to have that sense of satisfaction to know how those funds are being used, and and more importantly, are my dollars actually making an impact? So, you, you know, there's there's got to be a happy medium where right. unrestricted funds, especially sizable of any size, but you know more importantly, I've seen sizable grants where maybe donors are more concerned uh, and interested i want to say interested in knowing are my dollars going to good use and and what's the outcome, which I get um, but there's got to yeah. be some happy medium where unrestricted funds they there's a happy outcome there too, because for instance, right. if you have if you have a leader that is spending his or her time. With doing work that that's taking that leader away from actually running the organization, i.e., analyzing data, um, running help to run program or events. You know, if you don't have a, a staff, you know, an, enough of a staff appropriated to do those other types of tasks to again run the programs effectively, it's taking time away from leadership to oversee the organization. So, just those intricacies um where that does have a positive outcome and so maybe figuring out with our grant makers how can we how how can we report this so that unrestricted funds we show you we know it's going to work we know that there's a positive outcome here and number one being that we've been able to to sustain and still support and provide services to our community
1: yep yeah. yes yeah. like how do how do how do we get there Um, because, I mean, I think just like you said, like, it's been working. It's been working over the last year, and I know some organizations have, like, lifted their reporting requirements, um, you know, like, temporarily, Um, but I really hope that a lot of folks just stick with the changes they made during the pandemic um, and see that it, it it can actually just help to build deeper relationships because you're maybe talking more to to the nonprofits you're partnering with and hearing about their work and learning about their work, but not necessarily requiring a written report. Um, and I think if we – I mean, I always – I love to, like, ask um, – when when people ask me questions, I love to turn the question back around on them. Like, even with my kids, if they're like, someone asked him to touch my hair. I said, well, did you ask them if you could touch your, their hair? <laughs> um, you know? So it's like when folks are like, we need to see the budget. Show me what you spent the money on. I'm like, how about you show me what you spent your check on? Um, no, don't want to do that? Okay. Um, why? Because you're an adult <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. not your parent. Um <laughs> You know, but um, it's like it's it's really just treating people the way you want to be treated, and and seeing yourself as a as a partner in the work. Um, but the folks out there doing the work from from the community know what to do, just like you said, Michelle. Um, and we're we're simply partners. Um, you know, and, and returning the resources for you to carry out your mission and the way that you need to do it. And I think once we let go, like, you know, I mean, there's always going to be a power dynamic, but as much as we can release that as much as pos- possible and show up vulnerable and interested in the work, mm-hmm. um, a lot of that can shift. And just by talking to folks, we'll
0: know what's happening
1: with them. We don't need a written report.
0: Mm-hmm. and partnership i think is the key as you said we you know you're your partners in this with people that are have funds coming your way and, and and from your perspective as the funder and the grant maker you know looking at it as as a partnership because truly that's what it is
1: yeah yeah and i i mean and i hope like in the future Um, One of my other dreams, too, and I think folks are talking about this more. Um, I think Edgar actually talks about this, too, is um, what if, like, funders had to apply to nonprofits, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and and be like, hey, we'd love to fund you. Because um, even now, with uh, we don't have an open process this year. We're invitation only. Um, but we've been doing work for the last couple of years. So we've been reaching out to folks that we'd love to partner with because um, we have limited resources um, this year. And we, we set up a call with them. And they're ready. As soon as the beginning of the call, they're ready to just jump in and tell us all about their work. And we're like, wait, before we get started, we're here to actually pitch you. We want to know if y'all want to partner with us. So we want to tell you a little bit what we do, who we currently partner with, so that you can know if we're for real or not. And, you know, because all money is not good money, and you may not want to partner with us, you know. But Mm -hmm. I would love nonprofits to get to where they're only accepting resources from folks that align with them. And Mm -hmm. funders may be left out in the cold, like, Oh, I saw everyone's funding uh this nonprofit. profit. How come your name's not on there? On that Very list. Very interesting. And I, yeah. And they'd be like, Oh, yeah. well, we uh uh we you know
0: I mean and then having funders be left out. I think that'd be it, amazing. Until they make adjustments and maybe <laughs> exactly. the funders would have to look at their own internal philosophy and processes and procedures and uh, leadership, and and make adjustments. So that that's very interesting. Have you ever <laughs> had a nonprofit turn you down? Um,
1: no, not yet. But definitely, people are suspicious of us. We just want to know about people as individuals. You know, like how'd you get mm-hmm. into this work, and 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 we're like, no, don't tell us about like the work. And they're like, well, our organization. I'm like, no. Remember, I just asked about you. <laughs> You and they're yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay.
0: Again, a very different process that people are not used to. So they go into auto; they kind of go on autopilot by, as you said, telling them you telling you about, oh, here's what we do, here's our mission, and you're like, wait, put the brakes on. We're going to do this differently. So I'm sure it's mm-hmm. uh, it throws people. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. Every time.
0: <laughs> so I. Th- I just wanted to ask you, um, this has been a very fascinating conversation. You are an amazing person. Uh, I love the work that you're doing. I share um, your sentiments and your goals and your philosophy. I would like to ask you, what message would you like to leave today for our listeners?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um, That's always a really hard question. I think I will... Like, I would love to say something brilliant and unforgettable. um, You already have. uh, (laughs) Oh, thank you. I think, please, if the biggest thing, I think, if everyone can show up in their full selves and provide space for people to show up as their full selves and we can have really honest conversations and ask for what we need, um, I think a shift will start to happen. If everyone could just remove their veil and see people. Like, this is people. Philanthropy, like I said earlier, is heart's work. It is my heart's work to be here and um, and play a role in facilitating the return of resources. And um, I really want people to connect with that. Like, how are you showing up? Are you allowing people to be their full selves? Are you bringing your full self? Which then I think allows other people to do the same. Um, So be in this work and be in this work for real and commit to this work, to supporting and partnering with nonprofits um, as we try to not really dismantle but reimagine this country, this space that we're in, removing these systems of white supremacy. That That's what we have to do for things to work for everyone. It, it will have the curb cut effect um, where, you know, it's not only for wheelchairs, but strollers use the curb cuts as well. And um, that's, I mean, if we can fix things for black and indigenous folks and then moving our way up from there, people will realize it will fix a whole lot of other things for other folks as well if we care about each other enough to do it.
0: That's a, a beautiful message. Thank you so much, and thank you for sharing your life experiences, your work experiences, and you know all the amazing work that you're doing and your commitment to equity and philanthropy. We appreciate you and support you, and just thank you so much for being here today, Cece.
1: Thank you so much, Michelle, for inviting me. This was a lot of
0: fun. And thank you to our listeners. Remember to follow us or click that subscribe button and join us next week for another interesting discussion. I'm Michelle Woodard, host and co-producer, bringing you Philanthropy Infusion for new ways to expand giving and infusing equity into your philanthropy. Tune in to Philanthropy Infusion on Anchor, Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud as part of the Kelson On The Air Social Work podcast a Kelson Communications production. Thank you to our listeners. Remember to follow us, click that subscribe button, and join us next week for another interesting discussion. I'm Michelle Woodard, host and co-producer, bringing you philanthropy and fusion for new ways to expand giving and infusing equity into your philanthropy. Tune in to Philanthropy and Fusion on Anchor, Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud as part of the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, Kelson Communications Inc. Production.